Welcome to First Unitarian Society of Minneapolis, the birthplace of Congregational Humanism. We carry on that tradition of free thought today, dedicated to promoting a free search for truth, meaning, and justice. Our web address is firstunitarian.org. I'm David Breeden, Senior Minister. Welcome. Well, if you've been wondering what to do uh, to honor Memorial Day beyond another picnic, I would recommend a book to you, This Republic of Suffering, Death and the American Civil War, by the historian and the first female president of Harvard, Drew Gilpin Faust. Uh, This Republic of Suffering, Death and the American Civil War. I grew up Um, surrounded by old graveyards uh, in the deep uh, southern Illinois. It's the meeting of the Ohio and Mississippi rivers uh, down there at the point, the beginning of the American South. So uh, we had graveyards everywhere, and I enjoyed reading, uh, going to them, reading the gravestones. And there were far more people dead than uh, uh, were uh, alive in the farm where I was living anyway, around in that area. One thing I noticed as a kid was how many graves of the soldiers that had been killed in the Civil War there were, number one, in the local graveyard. But also I noticed that they all were killed in 1861, or 1862. So where was the logic? I mean, the war built up, so lots more died after 1862. Where did they go? Well, the answer is that the number of dead overwhelmed uh, the systems in place at that time to deal with dead bodies. Uh, There were estimated three million pounds of dead flesh after the Battle of Gettysburg, for example. So there's a lot of stuff to deal with and a lot of dangerous biohazards, shall we say. Um, The attempts to bring the dead back stopped in 1862, as a matter of fact, at the Battle of Shiloh, which is where many of those soldiers that were close to my farm had died. Uh, The Army of the Tennessee Uh, was a northern army of uh, hillbillies from the Ozarks. The army of Tennessee were Confederates from Tennessee. So that's, it's weird, but it's true. But also, uh, Ulysses S. Grant was one of the commanders of that group. Now, what we call the 30th, that's what we used to call it in those days, the 30th, and then it became Decoration Day, and nowadays it's Memorial Day. But it was a very big deal in our community, those of us who had been in that area for a very long time, and we all knew family from the Civil War period uh, who were buried out there. So we would go out on the 30th of May and do spring cleaning in the graveyards. Now, my grandfather still called it heaping the graves, Heaping the graves, we got to go heap the graves, which was a a practice that people did before the intervention of electric lawnmowers. Okay, so we're talking a while back. Up until the 1930s, roughly, in the area where I grew up, we're a little more depressed and poor there. But Ozark folks dressed up the dead at home, of course, in the old days. My grandmother was the known neighborhood body washer uh, of dead folk. And my grandfathers all uh, dug graves during those times and built the coffins as well. And so those were wood. All right. So in many old cemeteries in the Midwest, you will see the stone outlines of some graves. If you look closely at this photo, you will see those little walls, those little 
type. Now, those are the rich folks who could afford to do that, and that's marking out where the grave, the person is buried, but it's also to hold in the dirt, because in those days, they simply heaped the earth back over the grave, and every spring, they would go out and heap it again. Why? Well, because the caskets were made of wood, and they collapsed over the winter often. Uh, and so you had to go in and put over the grave, and you didn't want to be walking on those. Uh, I myself have stepped into some graves that uh, weren't, shouldn't have been stepped into, and you sink about three feet in the ground with one leg, and you have to crawl back out. Uh, so you want, uh, but uh, yeah, that, that's one of the reasons my grandfather was not entirely happy about that going away. He no, never got over the disrespect of walking over somebody's grave. So I learned early, uh, in the Ozarks anyway, we always build cemeteries on an east-west axis. And the reason for that is that the dead person will sit up one morning facing east so that they can see Jesus Christ arriving from the east on resurrection morning. Now, this is a way that we honored our ancestors, the, the people who had gone before us and built this area. Not because... We were watching in heaven uh, and thinking we were going to go. I never believed in that. I don't quite think. But we wanted to do our best for honoring the dead. Well, as a non-theist, never have I ever, never have I ever used a phrase that you probably have heard in your, in your time as well. And it should never be used in the same sentence as the word humanism, I think. But it's often quoted to kind of make a, a backward attack upon non-theists. It comes from the philosopher Protagoras. Uh, he died in 400 BCE, speaking of ancestors, that's a while ago. Uh, and it's often uh, quoted as, man is the measure of all things. With the follow-up, many people, oh, how sad, you poor folk, all you've got are human beings to measure things, right? I don't see it that way, uh, because actually, I can read a little Greek, and that ain't what it says, right? <laughs> it says, ox anthropos te mater olanthon programates, which actually means, oh, the human, or alas, the human, ox means you know, big, big O, like in poetry, oh, or alas, oh, the human. It is the measure of all the programs. Uh, I like that, that cognate, progmates, because it really means exactly the same thing. And if you're into the matrix, you could say, oh, wait, that's a message from the, from the distant past telling us we're actually living in, the, in a maze, isn't it? So, oh, the human, it is the measure of all things. And I think that's important for us to remember that man is not proudly the measure of all things. It's sad that we do measure all things and think that we're actually measuring them. That's the mistake in, in the system. So sure, we, we do do it, but it's always a mistake according to Protagoras. Another ancestor reminds us of this. Quote, but if cattle or horses or lions had hands or could paint with their hands and create works as people do, horses like horses and cattle like cattle also would depict the gods' shapes and make their bodies of such a sort as the form they themselves had. If horses created gods, 
they would look like horses and think like horses. That's Xenophanes. And in, yeah, he's talking about icons, statuary here, but there is the deeper truth that imagining, right? Image, imagining, imagine. When you image a god, it's going to probably be a lot like you. As, as the humanist ancestor Zora Neale Hurston put it, God all, gods always behave like the people who make them. She follows that up pretty quickly by saying, that's a problem, <laughs> right? And some of you may have been, uh, remember a few weeks ago I mentioned uh, Ludwig Feuerbach, a great German theologian who said theology is anthropology. Theology is anthropology. It's just human beings making up human things was his claim. Which gets us to a question for the day. Can we human beings ever think or act outside the walls of our own subjectivity? Can we? But alas, to be completely honest about it, nobody knows the answer to that question, though we know that sometimes we can act in ways that are not selfish. Right? We can be compassionate, empathetic, but can we ever actually think outside of our own subjectivity? Ways that are not about me, 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 me. Well, that runs us into trouble if we do. Can we figure out a way out of it? Take, for example, the greatest hit of the 60s, Buffalo Springfield lyrics, right? What a field day for the heat, remember this? A thousand people in the street singing songs and carrying signs, mostly saying, hooray for our side. It's an earworm, yes, but it, that it also is a very deep, theological position, right? Basically, is all we say when we make moral decisions, yum or yuck? <laughs> As a matter of fact, there is an entire school of philosophy referred to as the boo-hurrah theory of moral reasoning. These philosophers, and it really begins after the First World War with the amorality that, that Europeans were, were seeing in that war, and they start to ask a very simple question. How is a political or moral opinion different from expressing a food preference? Is it different from expressing a food preference? Take, for example, not to make you hungry, flaming hot Cheetos breaded deep fried ice cream. Yum! <laughs> or not. Are our moral beliefs only statements of preferences? Justice, world peace, a chicken in every pot and a car in every garage. Yay! Hurrah! Hurrah for our side. If stating a moral position is in essence merely stating a preference, Exactly the same as stating that you yum, flaming hot Cheetos, or no, yuck, yum, cool ranch Cheetos, then isn't supporting, oh, you know, torture, racial profiling, the same as boo or hurrah on a moral scale. Hurrah for our side. As a matter of fact, why even bother to try to swim upstream or change anything? Shouldn't we just relax and 
float? Because why would we have an opinion that's different from, oh, what we call the herd? It's called the bandwagon effect. The observation that people often do or believe what they think many other people do. It's also known as the herd instinct. Now, I hasten to say that these terms shortchange the intelligence of herds, at least non-human herds, right? And it's also not fair to bands that travel in wagons. I think probably the better term is groupthink, which was a term not invented until the late 1970s. But you get the idea. Are what we call beliefs exactly like saying, yum, apple pie, I like that. That debate went on all through the 20th century, mostly among moral philosophers housed in universities. Most people never heard this long argument. In this century, science has also gotten involved in how this works. Now, for example, we know that thoughts measured by MRI scanner are as unique as your fingerprints. I find that pretty amazing, but it's true. We come by the herd instinct naturally because we evolved as social animals. Yet each of us hops on the bandwagons that we hop on to through a process of completely subjective, individualized brain activity. That's weird and interesting, isn't it? And notice the differences in neuron firing between gossip there, lots of red going on in the picture, right? A function of the herd instinct, right? Thinking about others. And spirituality, which is a subjective and usually individual experience, even when you do it in a congregational setting, all right? Kind of different in terms of the firing there, isn't it? Red is upset. In 1842, Ralph Waldo Emerson wrote this. The materialist insists on facts, on history, on the force of circumstances and the animal wants of man. Old language. The idealist on the power of thought, capital T, and will, pre-Hitler, so you could still talk about will with a capital W in those days, on inspiration, on miracle, on individual culture. Now, what Emerson was talking about Today, well, it may be kind of a spiritual extremist position that he was taking. I think that's maybe one of the reasons he's still talked about today. Nowadays, Emerson's insistence upon subjectivity and individualism in thought gets dismissed a lot. Individualism has a bad name, at least among individuals nowadays. It slowly has been turning that direction. But Emerson was coming at this question from a different direction uh, than what we do nowadays to get there. Uh, he, and he, he was thinking about this, this problem very deeply. Already by the 1840s, Boston had become the center of abolitionist activity against slavery. Emerson deeply believed in the cause of abolition. Go Emerson. Yet, he was very concerned about that becoming a bandwagon. And he did not want to be perceived as on any bandwagons. But Ralph, we say, right? The way to abolish slavery is to mass produce a whole bunch of people on a bandwagon who will go invade the South and wipe out slavery. Why are you concerned? Well, 
Hmm. Large numbers of people joining together to do the right thing. It, it, that's democracy, isn't it? That's a good thing. So why was Ralph anti? Emerson would respond that human groups always take a sectarian turn. All right? In other words, human propensity always is to make an us out of, and them out of everything we do. And we like us, and we don't like them. Yay, our side, boo their side. And Emerson thought, when you do that, you're not thinking anymore. Right? You're not thinking. That's why he talks about the idealist tradition over the materialist, the one satisfying what he calls animal wants, by which he meant gut reactions, boo hurrah only, not thinking about it. Now, we don't use the term animal wants anymore. Uh, that's not considered nice. The British moral philosopher G.E.M. Anscombe, affectionately known among her colleagues as the dragon lady because she was so good at kind of ripping apart all the patriarchal men philosophers. And uh, C.S. Lewis, after a debate with her, had to go home for like three weeks and, and no one saw him because he had to hide out. Uh, he, he felt so, so bad about, about that, right? She had a killer debater, debating style. But the primitive side of wanting is trying to get, she said. The primitive sign of wanting is trying to get. Now, think about that for a moment. The primitive side of wanting is trying to get. So she, she's meaning there's an unprimitive side. She's not talking about primitive people. She's talking about all of us. We have a primitive side that wants, want, 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 ice cream, fried ice cream, you know, yum, right? And also, we have other ways of wanting, unprivileged, unprimitive ways of wanting. Note that Anscombe isn't using the term primitive in, in, in a derogatory way. It's possible to have a group of people who do not somehow all hop on a bandwagon, she thought. It has to be. There has to be a way for thinking people to decide morally what's going on without merely saying hurrah for our side. We can make moral decisions. That's what Emerson is saying as well. We can. We can think beyond yuck and yum. Emerson insisted upon this even as the United States rushed into the bandwagon of war. Anscombe insisted upon this in the wake of the Second World War and the revelations of Nazi atrocities. For example, go back to that flaming hot Cheetos breaded deep fried ice cream. Yuck or yum, boo or hurrah, are those our only choices? Well, actually, it's possible to have further dimensions to that, isn't it? Perhaps you are, for example, lactose intolerant. Yuck or yum is no longer the reason that you don't eat ice cream, right? Or perhaps you're vegan because you object to industrial dairy farming. That's a moral reason. Yes, it's saying, boo, dairy industry, but an objection also might say, well, I'd love to have some. I just want the non-dairy variety of fried uh, Cheetos. So, Emerson and Anscombe both saw the issues of justice in societies are just like that, right? They have the deeper meanings to them, but notice that those are individual wishes, not because we're all not lactose intolerant, right? 
So then we can have an opinion, we can have an unconsidered opinion, but we can have an opinion beyond yuck or yum. How many moral reasons are there for fighting the banning of books, for example? My writer's group is suing the state of Florida for this, right? It's freedom of speech. So, yay. <laughs> Pen America, yay. Okay, so that might be virtue signaling. We have that term nowadays, right? I, I, we're, oh, I'm against book banning. I, am, I, I want all my friends to like me because I know y'all are against book banning, right? That's a bandwagon, all right? On the other hand, perhaps I fight the banning of books because I deeply believe in the concept of a free marketplace of ideas. That ain't yuck. <laughs> That's not boo. Right? Perhaps I'm convinced that having a book on the shelves that affirms a child's personality and personhood is actually a socially valid and valuable thing to have. As a matter of fact, that's what I do think. And I think that you don't have to be a zombie to agree. If you happen to be a totally amoral leader, we, we've heard of some of those, who's interested only in leading human beings to particular conclusions and gaining certain things from that, the bandwagon effect is exactly what you want, isn't it? Come with me, mob. Emerson and Anscombe and many other moral philosophers hope to direct a sizable number of us away from the bandwagon effect. Examining our intentions is the very essence of inner work. Why am I saying boo? Why am I saying yuck? The philosopher Gloria Anzaldúa calls for us to consider the bandwagons we ride on, and she proposes this is the way to get off it. The creation of yet another culture a new story to explain the world and our participation in it, a new value system with images and symbols that connect us to each other and to the planet. We'll imagine no bandwagon. But how do we explain the series of events that led to an American Civil War or a Nazi genocide? How do we comprehend a series of events that leads to the murder of George Floyd three years ago? Where might people acting in moral ways be effective in preventing injustice and murder? One of the curiosities of our national political debate concerning racism is that we liberals tend to blame systemic racism. It's a system, we say. Groupthink at its most damaging. While political conservatives tend to explain racism, gun violence, etc., as a few bad apples, right? Bad individuals. Now think about this for a moment, okay? Isn't it interesting, liberals who insist upon individual freedom of thought, even to the point of wanting books in libraries to read, we see many societal problems as instances of long-term groupthink. Systemic racism. While conservatives, who often insist upon social control down to the level of controlling an individual's ability to walk over and pick up a book, that measure of control, yet many conservatives see societal problems as instances of individualism. Huh. It seems like that would be the opposite 
if you stop to think about it. And don't both sides often get things backward? Individuals, even while considering their actions individually, too often operate out of groupthink. Right? While groups, even when they think they are co collectively good, may be op operating out of complete subjectivity and individualism. A whole group of individuals. Alas, as Protagoras said, poor human beings. We continue to measure all things according to our preconceptions unless we stop to think about it for a while. It's not smart to act like you did yesterday because it led to the disaster we're living with today. Sure, yay humanity, boo humanity, whatever. We stumble, we humans, as often as we take a step. We know that about us. We don't have any wool over our eyes. Yet, we have people in our tradition saying we can think as individuals. We can think clearly if we really work on it. And, as we humanists say, we are all we've got. Thanks for listening. You can find much more about humanism and what's happening at First Unitarian Society in Minneapolis by visiting our website at firstunitarian.org.